I've had hundreds of big conversations, and my conversation partners share wisdom I carry with me wherever I go. Across the years, people have asked for shorter-form distillations of some of my favorite moments, something you could listen to in the time it takes to make a cup of coffee or tea, and something shareable. The Becoming Wise podcast is that offering, and we've just launched its second season. Take 10 minutes to reset your day and replenish your sense of yourself and the world. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Becoming Wise wherever podcasts are found. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Buddhist ecologist and Rilke translator Joanna Macy. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever podcasts are found. And Krista is somewhere. Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Hi, Joanna. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hi. I can't hear you very well. All right. Uh... Let's see, we can turn up the volume. I'm a little late, maybe a minute or two because of the parking confusion. No problem. Don't worry. Take your time. Catch your breath. Yeah, that'll be good. That good? Let me catch my breath. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what I have in mind. I I don't. I I need more volume to hear you better. Oh, okay. Let Uh, me see. That's going to happen at your end. Um, can you, are you, is that any better? Are you hearing me now? It's a little better. Okay. Um, sorry, what's the... But now my voice is very loud to me. Right. Huh. So let's get it adjusted a little bit. You know, that shouldn't... Are you, are you working on that, Chris, or is that... Oh, that's better. That's good. Good. Okay. Um, let me tell you what I have in mind while you catch your breath. Um, Okay. I... I uh oh now I'm hearing an echo. Let's see. That's probably a That's that's her headphones being a little bit loud. Okay. Maybe if I You know, it's not too bad if I stay back from the mic. No, we should get you where you're comfortable, Chris. If we can get the headphones down just a little bit, I think I'll be okay. There's a the the thing that happens with headphone volume is if it's too high at your end, then I hear an echo and vice versa. So we need we'll get a happy medium here. Um yeah. So can they? What's the engineer's name? Chris. Kelly. You hear us? Kelly, hear us? Or? Yeah, Kelly should be able to hear us. Okay. Okay. Now I think. Yes, I, this is Kelly. Okay. You, are you still hearing the echo? I turned down the headphones. Yeah, we're still hearing it. So, uh, I mean, it's it's tricky because do you have a mix that you can have her level be adjusted in comparison with Krista's? Krista's? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm working on that. Okay. So. You know, it's probably more difficult because I'm a little hard of hearing, and I t- took off my hearing aids. Well, we'll we'll be able to, we'll be able to work, it work it out. But I'm sure you have. <laughs> it's not the first time you've had to deal with that. No, the thing no. is with technology, <laughs> technology it's, amazing, it's amazing, and something, and something different is difficult every time. <laughs> Callie, is your mic open right now? Yes, my mic mic is here. I'll turn it off, and we'll see if that makes a difference. Okay. Um, testing, testing. I'm not hearing myself now. Joanna, can you still hear me? Very well. Good. Okay. So, so let me tell you what I have in mind. I am a lover of Rilke, like you, and I, I 
adore your translations of Rilke. And oh, good. I, um, I spent uh, most of the 80s in Germany, most of that in divided Berlin. And I, ah. I speak German, and, and Rilke's German <laughs> is, you know, one of the most beautiful things in the world to me. And uh, I could never find translations that captured that until I discovered your books with Joanna, oh, with, uh, with Anita. And um, we've, whenever we've quoted Rilke on the show, which we have, we always use your translations. I had one of your translations at the beginning of my first book. So, <laughs> so anyway, we, so I thought, and so I have been steeping myself in, in all of your writing and, and other interviews you've given. Um, what I what it occurred to me, though, in the end is, I mean, your life has been so full. There's so much to talk about. But I thought I'd still like to use Rilke as kind of a jumping off point and a lens through which to explore uh, yeah. that. Does that make sense? Because That also, sounds kind of delicious. Okay. It will sound to me, too. And the thing is, um, I think even when you are talking <clears throat> about... Um, Subjects that that many people are talking and thinking about these days, like ecology or you know, are the changes in our world, transformational change. Um, you you bring a poetic sensibility to it, and you appeal to that place in others. So I think it's also fitting, and and let's just see what happens. We get to have a real conversation here. <laughs> okay, so I'm happy that that works for you, and I know. Um, I'd love for you to read if if you start talking about a, a poem or if you feel like you want to read something, you know, just feel Good. free to do that. And Good. we might also <laughs> at the end of the conversation we might I might also just ask you to read a few just to have those. Oh, good. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's, the, that's what I most love to do. Good. <laughs> you, you know, Krista, that now when I do organizing or talks about current affairs or about uh, how to get involved in uh, taking part in the Great Turning. I find I'm always using poetry yeah. because people, the minute I use a poem, I read a poem, people's attention moves almost physiologically down deeper in their body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say we end up using poetry more and more on this program as well. Um <clears throat> On any number of subjects, for for the same reason. I mean, recently we had a program with uh, on, on with Ellen Davis, who's an, a, te- a scholar of the of the Hebrew Bible, who's done a lot of work on ecology and the land, kind of reframing. It's very compatible with the kinds of things you <laughs> think about. And Wendell Berry is a poet who she works with, and uh, and Wendell Berry actually read some of his poetry for us, and we scattered it throughout the show and. And people love that, you know. It's really oh yes, yeah. oh yes. So, Chris, how are we? Can we talk? Okay, it's official. <laughs> um, so, just as we start, I would love, uh, and this is where I start with everyone, whatever we're talking about. I, I'd like to just hear. If, I would like to just ask you to to talk a little bit about um, the spiritual and religious background of your childhood. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a liberal Protestant family where the church was very important uh, because my grandfather was a congregational preacher, and uh, so were his uh, father and grandfathers on back, though my fa- that it skipped a generation with my father. At any rate, uh, I uh, was very familiar with um, the sounds and words and the great feeling of comfort 
when we went to church as a child, people said nice things. They didn't argue, which was what was happening in my home. Mm. And uh, and then, and I, I had a, uh, what we could say, a conversion experience, although it was already in the church, but uh, Jesus and God became very personally alive for me when I was just turning 16 at a church camp. And I wanted to give my life to the church. But at that point, Krista, <laughs> there was, it didn't even occur to me to enter the ministry. I mean, I was right. that much a child of my era. Right. And so uh, since I didn't even consider it, I was thinking of other ways like being a min- missionary or something. But when I studied and went into studies of biblical history and theology, I began to choke. Uh, Mm -hmm. I found that there was something that I balked at terrifically, uh, which were uh, creedal arguments about items of belief and also any hint of exclusivity that there were people uh, beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, I walked out. Um, when I was um, 20, and it was a a great hole in my life that opened up. And uh, it was actually not until uh, 15 years later when my young family and I were in the Peace Corps in India, and I began working with Tibetan refugees. That was the mid-'60s. I found a... uh, way of looking at the world through, I became so curious about what made these people so uh, calm and radiant and and uh, unstoppable in uh, preserving their tradition and in enjoying life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, but in the meantime, yeah. I, there I wanna, was a... I want to yeah. I, I get to all that. I, I do want to ask you, just, just starting back cl- closer to the beginning, because it um it, you mentioned that your that there was a lot of arguing in your in your family and you in your memoir which is very beautiful you um you you write about that about a lot of darkness and suffering that was there but <clears throat> but also that that at that early age um and your and your father was um tyrannical was tyrannical and yet at the same time you talk about poetry being part of the ha- of, yes. your, of your family and that the, and that that was also something that that he brought that that that, that he kept alive that's right and that's it seems right. to me that you also had a kind of you had it that that was part of you know what would be very could be very broadly described as your spiritual sensibility also um from an early age is that right would you say that Yes, I would. And I would say also the summers that I spent at uh, my paternal grandfather's farm in upstate New York, mm-hmm. uh, it was um, being uh, with the, uh, in the fields, in the woods, uh, around the barns, uh, felt so real and uh, gave me uh, a sense of that the world was very big and and wise and intelligent, hmm. and that I could had an appetite to disappear into it. Hmm. And it was this streak of nature mysticism uh, that made the summer months 
so much more vivid and real to me than the nine months I spent in New York City at going to school. Hmm. And I live for that. And uh, it made me sort of a nature mystic and made it hard for me when I began to prepare myself to uh, work in the church because the church was where the sacred, the only place that the sacred seemed to be named and honored. And uh, there were hymns of St. Francis uh, and others that, oh, yeah, yeah, this is my father's world. That was another hymn I loved uh, that could lift me up into. And there was uh, uh, Jesus walking by the shores of Galilee. He was outdoors all the time, too. (laughs) You don't don't see him sitting in a pew or climbing up (laughs) on a pulpit. He'd climb up on a rock or walk along a sandy beach. Mm. And uh, so... Yeah. So, so um, as I said a minute ago, I... uh, I first discovered you and learned about you through as a translator of Rilke, and um, and I want to talk now uh, for this next hour about the life you've lived and what you've learned. And it it seems to and I want I was I wanted to try to take Rilke as a way into that the the life you've lived, your approach to it, your way of seeing the world and seeing change in the world, and you know. So you took. well, I'd like to speak then of when we were living in Germany. Yeah. My second son was born there. Okay. This was the 1950s, shortly after the Second World War. And uh, one day uh, I walked into a bookstore on Adalbertstrasse near mm-hmm. the university, and there on a table was this little sort of cloth-bound book and sort of rag paper. It was exquisite of the Inselverlag. And it was das, das Stundenbuch, the book of hours. Yeah. And I picked it up and the f- poem that offered us that it opened to was the second poem of the first part. Ich lebe mein Leben in wachsenden Ringen. I live my life in widening circles. Yeah. And that something immediately rearranged in the furniture of my mind, uh, I identified completely with it. And I saw as those, it's just eight lines in that poem, that it could redefine that I was on a spiritual path, that because I wasn't on the uh, linear road up the ladder, up Jacob's ladder to get closer to God, that God had been there all the time and I was orbiting around him and that it had been happening actually for uh, thousands of years. So so this was the 1950s, right, you said, and you... Is that what you yes. said when you discovered Rilke? And at that time, had you already... You had a very interesting early... Adventure with the CIA? Had, were you doing that at yeah, that point? Yeah, that's right. See, I had, uh, when I dropped um, theology in and Christianity, uh, my impulse, I had a very strong uh, impulse towards service, so I thought I would serve politically. Mm. And I got a Fulbright scholarship to the Institut de Sciences Politiques, political science in France. And there I uh, studied um, 
the French Communist Party, and that made me very interesting to CIA. I was all of 21, 22 at the time, and still very wet behind the ears, but I was getting, I had an excellent education, and I was learning a lot about the way communist parties were organized in France and in the overseas French colonies. And so uh, when uh, CIA, through uh, certain indirect means, dangled uh, a glamorous job in front of my nose, uh, I fell for it <laughs> and went and worked for them for about two years. Let me just, uh, John, I want to interrupt you for a minute because the volume in my headphones just dropped. I can't. So, Chris, I can't hear myself anymore, and she got very low. Are you? Is is it still coming through recording? I don't know what. Turn you up a little bit. Ask. I'm a little cold in here. I don't think it's a matter of turning it up. It's like something went off. You're not hearing her at all. I'm listening to what you're hearing in your headphones, and I'm hearing her. I'm hearing her, but she suddenly sounded very far away. I'll try. It might be something for the whole building. And I can't hear myself. Chris, are you hearing yourself now? No, not really. It was like, it was like suddenly she was in another. It was like suddenly, it was like suddenly I'd taken the headphones off and I was just <laughs> listening to the voice coming out far away. Yeah, are you hearing yourself fine now? I think I am. I don't think I am. I think I'm just come in there despite the headphones. I'm so sorry. We'll get this resolved. That's all right. Uh, I'm having trouble at this end with the air conditioning. Oh, yeah. Wow. And and I can't. uh, It'll make me, uh, give me a chill if I don't. That was what it was? So let me go look. I'll put this down a little bit. Let me see if there's an extra coat I can put on. Hold on. Are you cold? Yes, I am. So let me. I've got to turn off the air conditioning or find a blanket. Okay. I don't even hear them in the studio, so they must have gone to get her a sweater or something. Wish I could just give her this one right here and... Colleen is wondering how much of this show is going to be in German. Oh, gosh. I wish we could do it all in German. You wouldn't believe how beautiful Rilke's German is. It's like nothing else. It sounds nothing like Hitler. I think this is the moment when I need to read some German for my listeners. Finally. Finally. (laughs) 
Trent desperately wants to tweet what you just said. What? Trent desperately wants to tweet what you just said. <laughs> well, I've been waiting all these years. Hello? Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, a, it's the whole building is nice and warm. It's a summer day, and this little cubicle <laughs> yeah. had been like stepping into a freezer. Well, so see, it was uh, it, my my mic needed to go out so you could take a break and get a blanket. I'm glad that happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, um, we were talking about about. The CIA and that that moment in time—it's it's very striking to me, and you know maybe I'm projecting. But so I told you I spent most of the '80s in in Berlin, and so it, it, someone might see this and think, and 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 hear about this longing you had to um, to have a spiritual vocation, which stayed alive in you even when you didn't have a lot of definition to that. And then and then you're working with the CIA, but. You know when well, I, that hardly fulfilled it. It hardly but, fulfilled it, but but I but you know. somehow, you know, at that time, this was in the uh, right after you know, the very early fifties. Yeah, um, there was uh, some wonderful wartime heroes. Yeah, including William Sloan Coffin, the chaplain at Yale, and mm-hmm. others who were working with the shop, as it was called then. So I oh, thought really? I was in good company. Yeah. <laughs> well, then the and Cordmeyer of the word World Federalist. I know that. Yeah. The other so thing I, is, on you were you 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 know you write in your in your memoir about 1953, watching the the uprising of the workers in East Berlin and the the drama of that and the human devastation of that and how all of those dramas of Eastern Europe kind of. Um, consumed you in the fifties, and and it wasn't just political, was it? I mean, it was very much about human life, and that's right, that's right. And we had um, when we were living in Munich, uh, we opened, our, we had just this little house, but and and our first child, a baby, uh, we took in uh, Hungarian freedom fighters who mm-hmm. had escaped over the border. Uh, as Budapest was being, as the tanks were oh, rolling in, and all in 1956, right. and that drama yes. of the Hungarians uh, fighting in the streets for their freedom with incredible bravado and courage, and then the crackdown, and uh, then the refugees pouring over the uh, border. And so we took... Uh, a family, and then numerous others into our home. And so that, the human drama involved in the Stalinist uh, oppression of Eastern Europe, of course, was moved us deeply. Mm-hmm. And my husband was a um, scholar uh, in of uh, Soviet affairs. He'd been at the Soviet Studies program at Harvard when we met. And so his passion for Russian culture and his knowledge about what the uh, Soviet experiment was doing to that culture was very real for us. Now, then he was offered a job with the embassy in Moscow. Is that right? But instead, 
the two of you decided to go with your family to work with the Peace Corps in India. <laughs> That's right. And it would us the logical next step would be for us to go and uh, take a post. It would have been an influential one for him right. uh, in uh, the uh, public affairs uh, branch of the embassy. And But by that time, they... Uh, uh, chill of the uh, Cold War that was uh, like uh, worsening yeah. <laughs> at that time uh, that we've had no there must be there, let's go into a uh, a more rewarding where we can sense a future for our people for our planet uh, in working with uh, the cultures of the South um, rather than getting locked into this intensifying uh, hostility and distrust and dirty tricks right. between the U.S. and the USSR. Mm -hmm. But you know, Krista... I want to read the poem I mentioned. Oh, good. Not read it. I'd love for you to read it. Uh, it's in my mind. Good. And in the latest book that I hope you have, A Year with Rilke, I put this poem on my birthday. Oh, all right. <laughs> Please read it. <laughs> so as I stood there uh, having an exciting life, but still wishing that I were on a spiritual path, and what was there for me if I couldn't stomach uh, the church fathers <laughs> in Christianity <laughs> right. and the arcane th theological arguments? And then I read uh, this, um, so I'll say it in English. Mm -hmm. I, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I have been circling around God, that primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and still I don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? <laughs> Well, as I read those, and as you know, that I put the ti that first line Widening as the title circles. of my memoir. Yes. But the constrictions that my culture had made uh, around the sacred and it just fell away like dried crusts, uh, and and I felt an excitement about being alive now in a world that itself. Yes, of course it was. My world itself is sacred. I don't need to put all my notions of what is uh, exquisite, holy, to be devoted in a big daddy God or in any figure, but the world itself and, uh, and this mysterious uh, center to it around which I've been circling for thousands of years. So it was almost predictive because with deep ecology work and deep time work, right. we go quite specifically for our sense of being having a huge temporal context to our lives. You know, I want to ask you about um, 
that the last line of that that poem, and I mean, it just even how you reflect on that in terms of what you just said. I thought I had widening circles in front of me. I don't see it, but it says, "Am I a falcon? Am I what? What was the other? Or a great storm? A storm? A great storm? Or a great song? A great song? Bin ich ein Falke? Yeah. Ein Sturm oder ein großer Gesang? Yeah. How do you? How do you understand that line, and 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 how is your understanding of that? Um, well, I realized that was all of them, okay. and I realized <laughs> I didn't know, and I didn't need to know, mm. and that our minds, our human minds, are too small to be able to make pronouncements and definitions mm. around the source of the sacred. That it is everything that has called us into life. Uh, it is not to be separated from the web of life, uh, but it is, and it is not to be defined. Just as you know, you find in all the great traditions, and in he who speak, he who names the Tao doesn't know the Tao. <laughs> so it's the it gave a lot of room for the mystic in me. And then when you went to India, you. Um had you had an encounter with Buddhism? Did you know much about Buddhism and, and before you? Not really. Okay. No, no, which was w- quite wonderful because it was before uh, Buddhism was uh, sweeping. Really the West. came over to the West, right? And you you came to Buddhism in India as opposed to discovering so I, it over here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I was bent on. I I fell in love with these Tibetans. Uh, who were living in very harsh circumstances up in the foothills of the Himalayas after these incredibly uh, strenuous and often uh, with loss of life and and great danger uh, and sick-making escapes over the the, uh, peaks and passes that uh, out of Tibet, and uh, that the way they uh, loved life, uh, it just, and the way they loved their uh, tradition in a very open-hearted way, I wanted to know what helped them be like that. And I didn't want another religion, but I began uh, reading what I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I didn't ask them for teachings until I'd been with them for a good year because they were, I didn't want to add to their burdens, you know. They were not well and they were uh, trying to scramble together to keep their community together, right. to find ways of supporting themselves through. Uh, carving and carpet making and uh, so forth. But uh, then, so that was a, a turning point in my life. It's interesting, too, that you're, you were drawn to that tradition through its lived, as a lived expression, long before you actually got into the, um, to the beliefs or the teachings behind it. Yeah. Well, I had read... Uh, and I was primed for it because I had read uh, Heinrich Hauer's My Seven Years in Tibet. Oh, right, yeah. And I had read it in German, its original language. Yeah. And I had actually, I was going to interpreter school <clears throat> in Munich my last year. 
And I use that text for my simultaneous interpreting exercises that I would read it and render it in English without a pause. So that <laughs> that book really uh, got into my brain cells mm. <laughs> in my head and in my heart so that uh, when I was actually among uh, the Tibetans and in the presence of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, a young man then, yeah. uh, I, had, I certainly had a sense of déjà vu. And... As as you point out in some of your writing, there there is a real there are real echoes and resonance between um, some of Rilke's poetry about God and and Buddhist teachings and notions about reality. They're very interesting. Yes, yes, it's just amazing to me that uh, he refers to uh, you know early on in his. Uh, Stunderbuch, the Book of Hours, he said, we must not portray you in king's robes, mm. you drifting mist that brought forth the morning. Mm. And then he says, you are like a web, or you are like a tree, or you are a forest through which I run. I am a, or you are a herd of luminous deer, and I am forest and dark, and you run through me. So he's using uh, image after image from the natural world right. to uh, convey the, both the mystery and the beauty and the relationship that we find in the sacred. And he addresses uh, this sacred essay as God. But he's, it's a God that is very different from the one he had been dragged into Catholic churches in, in with his super pious mother in Prague as a boy. Mm. He hated that. He, she had him f- touch the uh, painted wounds on the crucifix to uh, arouse his compassion, and he found all that too repulsive. Mm-hmm. But then... Uh, when he went, interestingly enough, uh, in his early 20s to uh, Russia with his wonderful lover, Lou Andreas Salome, who was from St. Petersburg, and he encountered Russian spirituality, which is very close to the earth. Uh, and uh, that opened up to him a quality of spiritual experience that was very earth-related and vast and timeless. And and it's also part of your story, isn't it, that you you have also integrated these different teachings that are meaningful to you, right? I mean, you talked about your... You've written and talked about your real intoxication intoxication with Christianity when you were younger and you left that behind and you had this very amazing immersion in um, Tibet, Tibetan Buddhist experience. And then, you know, you've also written that you eventually, that your Christian, your earlier Christian experience resurfaced and infused your understanding of Buddhism. You didn't, oh, you didn't yes. choose between these things. They, they... This is the wonderful thing that I see happening uh, with many people who go into Buddhist study and Buddhist practice particularly, is that it helps de-literalize uh, the forms uh, we have 
that can support our spirituality. And I have seen countless people who are Jewish and Christian being able uh, and who had left their faith, uh, their root tradition, and then are able to return to it without, um, as I said, kind of deliteralizing it and, and treasuring the juice in it, treasuring mm. the uh, uh, beauty of the uh, imagery and the import of, of service to the world and non-separateness from the world. And in Christianity, I have loved working back with that tradition. Um, done a lot with theologian Matthew Fox, mm-hmm. uh, whose creation spirituality brings forward uh, from biblical teachings into the Christian tradition a very similar view of the non-separateness of all things in such a way that, of course, he got in trouble with the Vatican. But there is in all the traditions today, don't you think, Krista, in in Sufism and Islam, in the Jewish renewal movement, Mm -hmm. in creation spirituality, in Christianity, there is this opening up with reverence and appreciation to uh, the gift of life itself. And as you say also to... um Reimagining that relationship of human beings and spirituality to the natural world. You know, something that's very intriguing to me is that you were talking about the environment, and I think maybe, I'm not sure if you called yourself an environmental activist, but being one. That's true. Way way before that was something that so many people are talking about. I mean, tell me about how that awakening came in your life. (laughs) Well, it came about... Uh, very naturally, um, I was um, always responsive to issues when they arose. And then in the uh, 70s, it became quite vivid for me and quite compelling as through my son, my second son, uh, a, through a paper he wrote in his environmental engineering course at, at college that I learned about what nuclear power generation was doing uh, in even the thermal pollution, let alone the radioactive contamination. And uh, so side by side with him, we be- I stepped into uh, direct activism, uh, going together to occupy a uh, the Seabrook reactor before it could open and uh, protesting down at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and I learned piles there. And that had a great spiritual teaching for me, too, Krista, because it led me into fascination, if not obsession, I'll say obsession, with long-term radioactive contamination Hmm. uh, through our processes of making weapons and generating power that... uh, insisted that I open my mind to reaches of time uh, that had stretched my it, both my heart and my intellect. And in other words, I realized that uh, we were, through technology, 
having consequences with our decisions had consequences or a karma, as we could say, that reached into geological time. And that what in industry and government choices that we make under pressure for profit or bureaucratic whatever, that um, we are making choices that will affect whether uh, beings uh, thousands of generations from now will be able to be born sound of mind and body. Hmm. And uh, so this was where activism and environmental activism, again, uh, had a profoundly, um, I would say, yeah, spiritual effect on me, um, metaphysical effect. It it absolutely uh, widened my relationship to the ground of being. And I saw that I am a brought into this life uh, in a way that includes all my ancestors and all the ones of the future who, and it's their future that we hold in our hands now. Right. Something that's very present for me as I'm reading about you and the passion you've had for this for a long time is you you also were always very... um, aware of a sense of grief as you realized what, what you just described. Um, oh, yeah. You know, right? Grief got me into it. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, right now, say right now in this moment as we're speaking um, in 2010, uh, the, the spectacle that's very present for people, maybe more in the forefront, certainly more in the forefront of people's minds than nuclear power or nuclear weapons were in the 70s, is, uh, let's say, the, the Gulf oil spill, right? Oh, yes. Right? And there is this grief about that. Um, and you really work with people to hold on to that, hold to take their grief seriously, right? Or not to hold on to right. it so much as to not be afraid of it, mm-hmm. because that grief... If you are afraid of it and pave it over, clamp down, you shut down. Mm -hmm. And the kind of uh, apathy and um, um, close down uh, uh, denial, our difficulty in looking at what we're doing to our world stems not from callous indifference or uh, ignorance so much as it stems from fear of pain. Mm. And uh, I that was a big learning for me as I was organizing around uh, nuclear power and around, uh, at the time, of Three Mile Island catastrophe yes. and then around Chernobyl. And so then but I saw it. Uh, it, 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 it relates to everything. It relates to what's in our food, and it relates to the clear cuts of our forests. It relates to the contamination of our rivers and oceans. So that became actually uh, perhaps the most uh, pivotal point in um, the, uh, I don't know, the landscape of my life that dance with uh, despair, Mm. that uh, to uh, see how we are called to not run from the discomfort, 
and not run from the grief or the feelings of outrage or even fear. But, uh, and we certainly must, uh, but, but to recognize them as uh, these strong inner responses as stemming not from some private pathology or some neurosis we've inherited from our childhood wounds or what have you, but that they stem from our interexistence with all life. And uh, that if we can be fearless uh, to be with our pain, it turns. It doesn't stay static. It, Mm. It only doesn't change if we refuse to look at it. But when we look at it, when we take it in our hands, when we can just be with it and keep breathing, then it turns. It turns to reveal its other face. And the other face of our pain for the world is our love for the world, our absolutely inseparable connectedness with all life. And this is where Mm -hmm. uh, the whole thinking, you know, identified with both the Buddhist teachings and deep ecology have been very telling for me. And, and I think, again, um, you know, in, in even thinking that way, that a poetic mindset is more useful than the kind of fact-based, right, or argument-based way we tend to approach problems culturally, even precisely the same ecological problems, oh, yes. right? You know, that keeps people from even mentioning how distressed they are because they think that they need to have all the facts and figures and statistics to show that they intellectually mm-hmm. uh, can contra- but, but <laughs> master we, the problem instead also, of just... Yeah. But we get overwhelmed by the facts and the figures and the pictures. We, we, they, they're debilitating. They're paralyzing. Um, as you say, it's it's also that we don't really know how to dwell with grief and turn it into something else. But I think about that a lot as a journalist, as somebody who works in media. Mm-hmm. 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 So there is. Uh, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because you want to portray. I mean, say you're taking care of your mother and uh, she's dying of cancer or whatever, and you, can't, you won't say, I, I can't go in her house or in her room because I don't want to look at her. But if you love her, you want to be with her. Hmm. If, if we love our world, we want, we're able to see uh, the scum of oil spreading across the Gulf. We're able to see what it's doing to the wetlands and the marshes, what it's doing to the dolphins and the gulls and... Uh, when you love something, you don't. Your love doesn't say, "Well, too bad my kid has leukemia, so I won't go near her." Hmm. It's just the opposite. Do you think? Um, do you think that uh, what, what, what is empowering moments like that? I mean, I, I, and I wonder if Rilke comes to mind again. I, I, you know, I did interview Anita Barrows a few years ago for a program we did on depression, and and we talked about Rilke in that context, which is. I don't know, it's a, maybe a personal version of this collective issue we're talking about, of how he is very clear about darkness as a part of life. Yes, there's a, a poem that has been, it's a sonnet, and the very last sonnet to Orpheus uh, that has entered my bloodstream, that has helped me a great deal in this time. I will say it. Mm-hmm. 
quiet friend who has come so far. Parenthetically, you see, he realizes we've been on the way a long time. So he's talk, we talk to ourselves, we've been on the way a long time. Okay, start again. Okay. <laughs> Qu- quiet friend who has come so far. Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower, and you the bell. And as you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What's it like, this intensity of pain? Ah, If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world shall cease to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow, and to the rushing water speak, I am. So, Krista, what he's doing in that poem is he is fearlessly being with the darkness, with the pain. And instead of hiding, he's seeing as a bell tower, I will ring with it. I will tell, speak it. And then also he is taking refuge in his and in our inseparable, inextricable identity with the living earth. So, so Joanna, tell me, um, talk to me about where these kinds of insights have, have brought you. I mean, we, you know, you have had this fascinating life, and we talked about the 50s and 60s and 70s, and you were always responding and um, be, being with what was happening. I mean, where, how, does that, how, does, how do those words of Rilke speak to what's happening in this early 21st century that we're in now? Well... Uh, from the beginning, Rilke, in his first poems that he stayed loyal to in the Book of Hours, he saw that he foresaw, he had this strong inkling that he, and he gave visions, to, you know, metaphors and images to it, that this 20th century that was opening up would be very dark. He didn't know about the world wars. He didn't know about the... Uh, concentration camps, the death camps, the nuclear bombings. Uh, He didn't know about the new uh, diseases and epidemics, uh, but he uh, did sense that. And some of his poems are as if he's uh, consoling God for Hmm. uh, his uh, efforts to... um, you know, for what's happened to his creation. And uh, there's a poem that, where he says, um, ask God, God becomes the earth itself. And uh, he speaks to the earth. Du dunkelnder Grund, dear darkening ground, you've endured so patiently the walls we built. Please give the cities one more hour, Mm. and the churches and cloisters too. 
and then let, let those that labor, let their toil still hold them for another five hours or seven before that, incon- that hour of inconceivable terror when you take back your name from all things. Just give me a little more time. I just need a little more time because I am going to love the things <clears throat> as no one has thought to love them till they're real and worthy of you. So I feel like that. Mm, I'm right. ready to see. I'm not insisting that we uh, be brimming with hope. It's okay not to be optimistic. Buddhist teachings say, you know, a, uh, feeling that you have to maintain hope can wear you out. So just be, <laughs> just be present. The yes. biggest gift you can give is to be absolutely present. And when you're worrying about whether you're hopeful or hopeless or pessimistic or optimistic, that's who, who cares? The main thing is that you're showing up, that you're here, and that you're finding ever more capacity to love this world because it will not be healed without that. That was what is going to unleash, unleash our intelligence and our ingenuity and our solidarity for the healing of our world. So that is the way what keeps me going, Krista. And I have, um, my heart is breaking every day, if not every hour, over what's happening in the Gulf. And I see around the country people using my work, the work that reconnects, doing rituals, coming together to mourn. Mm-hmm. because they feel this is totally appropriate act of love and it does that then that builds the solidarity and releases the energy to act to be present instead of just pulling down the blinds and that uh, I feel very privileged to be alive now mm. I take very seriously uh, what I and others see as the possibilities uh right now, dawning now, which we call the great turning. Right. Let, let's talk or, about that. Let's talk about your, this phrase, the great turning, and, and what, what you mean by that. Where did that phrase come from, first of all? Well, it's the, it's the transition from a, a bankrupt political economy, which is the industrial growth society, which sets its goals and measures its success by how fast it grows. But in one... <laughs> area only, which is corporate profits and market share. Hmm. And when you have a living system, an open system, and you try to maximize one variable like corporate profits, uh, it's uh, bad news. It's curtains because it goes immediately out of balance into runaway. And that's what's happened with our um, economy and with our um, all the the infrastructure of belief systems that and institutions that support it. So the great turning is a, a revolution that is underway. Uh, a tr- the transition from uh, to a life sustaining society, but you're not going to read about it in the headlines or see it in the evening news because it is not of interest to the corporate-controlled media to uh, play it up or even to understand it. Where are you going to see it? Where where will people uh, see it? Well, I I see it 
uh, wherever I look, um, the, I see it in the uh, resistance, uh, people taking, whether it's legal, uh, legislative, uh, people agitating for preservation of soil and forests and seas, all that activism is uh, and building new structures. You know, Paul Hawken in his wonderful book, Blessed Unrest, talks sees it. Uh, these uh, grassroots organizations is numbering over two million and calls it the largest social movement in human history. And I totally agree with that, that this is uh, sprouting up in countless ways, new ways of holding the land, new ways of generating energy, new ways of producing food, some of them very old ways Mm -hmm. that we are going back to wisdom of the ancestors and of the indigenous people often, new ways of measuring prosperity and wealth. New ways of handling differences through nonviolent communication, through restorative circles, instead of uh, outside the dominant punitive penal system. Now, right. there's a right, right. tremendous right when uh, you add energy. all that up, you do see a, a picture. Oh emerging. yeah, mm-hmm. and then particularly there's the third dimension of it, which is the shift in consciousness, and that's what I'm particularly aware of through both a scientific revolution uh, from a stuff-based view of reality to a relational view where you can understand phenomena as open systems based in relational flow-throughs, whether you see it either in systems theory or quantum theory or... The way the internet works. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, And also the spiritual... Mm-hmm. Revolution, where we are waking up to uh, that, both scientifically and spiritually, that our Earth is a living system, and uh, that is not just what people talk about in lectures on new paradigm thinking. But I'm seeing it at the grassroots, in as people come together, uh, it's like the situation we're in is. Uh, Politically, militarily, we're waging war for oil. Uh, that we're, um, it's like a pressure cooker that's popping us into new ways of seeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am, find this uh, tremendously exciting time to be alive. Now, something else is going on too, which is the great unraveling under the pressure of the destruction caused by the Industrial Growth Society. And the awesome thing about the moment that you and I share is that we don't know which is going to win out. How is the story going to end? Mm -hmm. Is it going to end with a great unraveling or the great turning to a uh, life-sustaining society? And uh, that seems almost orchestrated to bring forth from us uh, the biggest moral strength, courage, and uh, creativity. And I feel, because when things are this unstable, a person's determination, how they choose to invest their energy in their heart-mind can have much more effect on the larger picture Hmm. than we're accustomed to think. So I find it a very exciting time to be alive, if somewhat wearing emotionally. (laughs) (laughs) Is is there any Rilke that comes to mind on, on these 
big oh, ideas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, There's something... That, yeah, tell me what comes to mind. Oh, I'm... Uh, all will come again into its strength. Uh, let me see if I can uh, find that. Um, you know, I, I keep, I'm trying to, there, I've been reading my, pulling out my Rilke as I was planning to read you, and there were a couple of lines that just were so haunting to me. Yes, I can't what's, find what them. You... And it's something about, it's the end of a poem, and it's something about in, like, that in, in the ephemeral nature of things is their very fragrance. Do you know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, yes, yes. Which sounds, oh, which sounds so much like you as a Buddhist. But it was yeah. so beautiful, so this beautiful. Is, this runs through Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus mm-hmm. because Orpheus represents not only the singer, but what the singer needs, which is uh, transiency, mm. ephemerality. Song itself cannot happen without time, without the voice rising and falling away. And so Orpheus himself, the great singer, uh, it, uh, dies, but yet his severed head keeps singing mm. as it floats down mm. the river. And I love it mm. that you remembered that line for, uh, is not impermanence the very fragrance of our days? Mm. It's so, not impermanence, so, the very fragrance of our days, right? Yeah, and uh, that's what I'm learning uh, through being alive in this moment of, in this planetary moment, Krista, is how to, uh, and I'm so glad for the spiritual teachers that give us practices for uh, helping us stay strong in the uh, whirling uh, rivers, uh, whirlpools of change, mm. that we are like a flame. Uh, we are like a whirlpool. We are like, and the Buddha said that, bhava sota, we are streams of being. Vinyana sota, we are streams of consciousness. So we are in a moment where the our worldview is shifting from a stuff-based or noun-based view of reality to a a flow-based. We are the flow. Or like that good witch's song, uh, we are the weaver and we are the web. We are the flow and we are the ebb. And that shift in a sense of who you are from being a static self to being a flaming, flowing thing uh, is enormously liberating, don't you think? Mm. You know, I'd love to hear your insight into something I've discussed with a lot of different people across the years, which is the the way in which spiritual energies kind of went under, at least went under the surface in American culture after the 60s and have resurfaced in the 21st century, um, sometimes in frightening ways, right? Um What's your take on that, on the religious energy of our time and the spiritual curiosity of our time? Mm. And I'm curious about your perspective on that, looking, looking across these decades that you have mm. such a great view of. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the spiritual companions that I would meet on the way or the companions through whom I found spiritual strength have been there all along. I'm thinking of 
uh, not only uh, the Tibetans. I'm thinking of the Quakers. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. the Quakers were the first people to respond to my um, despair and empowerment workshops. They really saw right from the get-go the um, link between spirituality and politics. And you look back and see what their faithfulness has meant in the big changes of our culture, like the abolition of slavery. Mm, right. So um, there is certainly being spiritual is more in now, but it also generates a lot of silliness mm -hmm. and, a, and a certain escapism and a whole lot of new manufactured products. You can take your pick <laughs> right. of different sizes. There's a consumer aspect to this too, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. But I think that, uh, yeah... What to say? I say that there is something very wonderful happening. I do see it, Krista. I, it's like uh, we are opening up. I think that in the third millennium, if we don't extinguish ourselves, is going to be characterized by a profoundly spiritual apprehension of the uh, magic and mystery and sacredness of life itself, and in which we link arms and, and to, in reverence to and in service to uh, the intricate connections that allow life to flourish in such complexity, beauty, and intelligence uh, in our planet. Mm. I, I that just, we will yeah. go on. Go on. No, I, I just, I just want to kind of underline the connection that you repeatedly make um, that I, I think might be counterintuitive culturally because spirituality also has, you know, has a tendency to get quite disembodied in the West. I mean, Christianity is pretty disembodied, and but you, you know, for you talk about spirituality and you also are always equally talking about you know these are some phrases from your writing that echo things you said your wild love for the world or an even an erotic connection with the world yeah that those two that's things right. go together for you that's right uh world is lover world is self and that um oh we are called to, it's okay for our hearts to be broken over the world, what else is what else is a heart for? <laughs> and and uh, and then, as I say, you know, um, the uh, your heart actually can't be broken. It's not, but if it could, if it, you had it breaking open, then it can hold the whole universe. It's that big. So that I, there's a great intelligence there. Uh, and that this is an era of our homecoming uh, to uh, our incarnation, to our embodiment as earth. We've been treating the earth as if it were a supply house and a sewer. Hmm. We've been grabbing, extracting resources from it for our cars and our hair dryers and our bombs. And we've been pouring the waste into it till it's overflowing. But it... Our earth is not a supply house and a sewer. It is our larger body. We breathe it. We taste it. 
We are it. And it is time now that we venerate that incredible flowering of life that takes every aspect of our physicality. So when I, I'm looking at my hand right now as we talk, it's got a lot of wrinkles because I'm 81 years old. But it's linked to hands like this back through the ages. It was this hand is shaped by when it was a fin in the mother seas where life was born. Hmm. This hand is directly linked to hands that learn to reach and grasp and climb and push up on dry land and weave reeds into baskets and it has a fantastic history. <laughs> every every particle and every atom in this hand goes back to the first what Thomas Berry calls the primal flaring forth, the beginning of space-time. We're part of that story. I, that actually gets at something I I wanted to ask you about your sense of time, but I was I I I came at that with a much more narrow imagination. I was I was thinking about the the history you've seen, um, the political history you've seen. You know how how that India you lived in um, uh, in the nineteen sixties is now transformed in many ways. It's a rising star mm-hmm. in a globalized economy. How that East Germany where you watched the uprising in Hungary, how the you know, the Berlin Wall mm-hmm. fell, the So you have a globalized culture yeah. extending over all of it. Uh, with a, a monoculture in a way um, that uh, is wiping out ancient cultures and languages. Is, is that what you see? Is that one of the first things that is clear to you yeah. as you watch this? Yeah, that's what I see. And uh, at the same time, there's this uh, incredible linking. Uh, yeah. And there is uh, right here uh, in my neighborhood a group of young women who have created an organization where they work uh, on appropriate technology with women in India and in Africa, <laughs> right. where they go over and they learn together to uh, make gray water systems and uh, solar cookers and water purification. Uh, and they're not going as, um, you know, the white man's burden. We come with the answers. Uh, they go over uh, raising the money here largely, and then going over and uh, learning with them uh, how to, uh, as women, take leadership in their villages. And so it does many things at once, but there is this wonderful sense of being interlinked on a planetary level that uh, I think I lack the uh, imaginative intelligence to really <laughs> grasp how huge this is. Right. Well, I, that, that, yeah. the, that our identity is shifting to being a planetary identity. Mm-hmm. Do you have the sense, I, I, I have, I mean, I'm, I'm, you're 81, I'm 49, but I, I have a sense also that, um, th- that there's, 
that there's an intuition in the blood and bones of young people, of new generations coming up, that they really, that they inhabit this reality, right? That they know it in a way that I never will. <laughs> I wonder, you it's have amazing. grandchildren. Maybe you and they're able to look into the face of some pretty awful political, corrupt machinations or what have you that would get me frothing with righteous indignation. Yeah. And they smile and shrug and say, what do you expect? And then they go and do what ne- what needs to be done. <laughs> right. Oh, this is so wonderful. I, um, I wanted to ask you, um, I want to ask you maybe one more question and then just have you read a few more poems if you would. Does that sound okay? Yeah. All right. So I was noticing um, one of your most recent books, I think, is this is more Rilke, which you titled "In Praise of Mortality." Um, you wrote Rilke invites us to experience what mortality makes possible. It links us with life and all time. Our and you went on. Ours is the suffering, and ours is the harvest. Um, I think mortality is one of the the reality of mortality is one of the hardest things for people in this culture to to dwell with to take seriously and I wonder at eighty one is there wisdom you have about that, that well it's very it's it's, <laughs> it's um, um I'm very grateful for Rilke because I signed the contract to uh prepare with Anita the year with Rilke, just weeks before the sudden death of my husband of 56 years. Mm. And uh, in that devastation and loss, I had to work on this book. And I had to be with Rilke. And uh, I couldn't say, oh, I'm too weak. Oh, let me mourn. Oh, Mm. it's too much. I, I just had to pull up my socks and do it. And what a reward. It was as if I were being dipped in beauty. Hmm. And then one day I I found this quote, and I put it in the book. um, And he says, I love, because he says a lot about uh, death and uh, the way he faced his death. And he did not take solace in uh, an afterlife. So he just saw death belongs to life and can make us more alive. But Krista, listen to this. I put it on February 27th. This great secret of death, and perhaps its deepest connection with us, is this. In taking from us a being we have loved and venerated, death does not wound us without at the same time, lifting us toward a more perfect understanding of this being and of ourselves. Get a load of that. <laughs> and, but, and, and, and they're beautiful words, and were you really able to inhabit those words when you're, after your husband oh. died? Oh, yes. Uh. Oh, yes. Well, you know, neither of us <laughs> thought we were immortal. <laughs> and... <laughs> And we knew one would go first, and I was everlastingly grateful that uh, we were uh, in love and stayed in love. Particularly, it was like falling in love all over again in our later years, and uh, so there was a lot of cherishing. 
But I found that that quote that I just mm-hmm. read you and that I it's really uh, engraved in the inside of my head um, is is true. It's true, and that's what we're we're changing all the time. And I'm not. Uh, uh, he's part of my uh, world now. You become what you love. Mm-hmm. And uh, Orpheus became uh, the world that uh, Rilke sang to. And my husband, Fran, is uh, spread out in this world that he loved. Um, I uh, So there's... Uh, uh, um, you're always asked to sort of stretch a little bit more, mm. and uh, but actually, uh, we're made for that. Uh, there's a song that wants to sing itself through us, and we've got to be ready. We've get, we're like a flute through which that great song can be blown. It we can, and uh, we just got to be available. Maybe the song that is to be sung through us is the most beautiful requiem for an irreplaceable planet. Or maybe it's a song of joyous rebirth as we create a new culture that doesn't destroy its world. But in any case, there's absolutely no excuse for our uh, making our passionate love for our world dependent on whether we th- what we think of its degree of health. Mm whether we think it's going to go on forever. Those are just thoughts anyway. But this moment, you're alive. This moment on January whatever 13th, you're actually there, though I can't see you. But you're there on this planet, this Earth, third planet out from uh, our sun. So you can just dial up the magic of that at any time. (laughs) Oh, this is so wonderful. I'm, I can't tell you. Would Would you read a couple more just favorite poems or th- things that occur to you from this conversation? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the poem for today in the year for Rilke, yeah, is uh, the Swan. And uh, when I opened it this morning and saw that, I was delighted because. Uh, when I've seen swans, they always make me think of Fran. And it's also about death and about how not to be afraid of death. <clears throat> this laboring of ours with all that remains undone, as if still bound to it, is like the lumbering gate of the swan. And then our dying releasing ourselves from the very ground on which we stood, is like the way he hesitantly lowers himself into the water. It gently receives him, and gladly yielding flows back beneath him as wave follows wave, while he, now wholly serene and sure, with regal composure, allows himself to glide. Hmm. So as I read that sonnet this morning, I thought of Fran, and I thought, oh, look at you getting to have some regal composure while I have to, de- <laughs> while I have to deal 
with a broken car, with <laughs> books I have to cull out, <laughs> with repairs to their heating system. <laughs> there he goes, regal composure. <laughs> Can I ask you to do something for selfish reasons? The, the poem that's in the Book of Hours, actually it's in the, yeah, God Speaks to Each of Us as He Makes Us. Oh, do you know that that poem is what initiated this uh, this book? No. Because I loved it so much, and I couldn't find it translated. And um, let me see where it's it is. It's on page 119 in the—but this is the 100th anniversary edition, which I know is different. No, I know just where it is. I'm finding okay. it. Oh, here it is. I would love to hear you <coughs> read this one. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad because I wanted to give this to uh, fellow activists of mine, but I didn't think that I could render it in, in English. So I asked Stephen Mitchell, a known, a famous mm-hmm. Wilka translator, to do it. And he didn't know it. And he said, oh, no, I can't get to that. You do it. So, mm-hmm. so. <clears throat> you are not surprised at the force of the storm. You have seen it growing. The trees flee. Their flight sets the boulevards streaming. And you know, he whom they flee is the one you move toward. All your senses sing him as you stand at the window. The weeks stood still in summer. The tree's blood rose, and now you feel it wants to sink back into the source of everything. You thought you could trust that power when you plucked the fruit. Now it becomes a riddle again, and you again a stranger. Summer was like your house. You knew where each thing stood. Now you must go out into your heart as onto a vast plain. Now the immense loneliness begins. The days go numb. The wind sucks the world from your senses like withered leaves. Through the empty branches, the sky remains. It is what you have. Be earth now, and evensong. Be the ground lying under that sky. Be modest now, like a thing ripened until it's real, so that he who began it all can feel you when he reaches for you. Mm. Is that the one you had in mind? It's not, but it's one of my favorites. So I'm oh, not sure. <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, when I got, to, I was reading away, and I thought, oh, hell, maybe no, but I love, another. I love that one. <gasps> no, but the one I'm, the one I'm. <laughs> talking about i'll tell you my story of this one it's god speaks to each of us as he makes us then walks us walks with us oh yes oh that is the one that has been set to music so many times so i i read that on my 40th birthday when i was struggling to create this radio show which felt like an outlandish idea to a lot of people that there should be a public radio program talking about religion and spirituality. And on that particular day, I, I didn't think I was going to make it. I didn't think it was going to work. It was too hard. There was too much opposition. <laughs> I read this poem that uh, in your translation, and it let me 
it told me that maybe it wouldn't work, <laughs> but that uh-huh. but that I should keep walking forward. That 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 in itself had value, and and here we are, almost ten oh. years later. <laughs> oh, so well, I, let me read it. All right, because this has become like this poem became has become like the uh, theme song of the deep ecology movement. Really, and I think it's been put to music and song. Oh. At least 30 times. Mm. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. Oh, Joanna, I just want to thank you so much for this. It's been amazing. And I can't wait to share this conversation with our listeners. Well, it's been a great pleasure for me, Krista. I hope we meet sometime. I do, too. Do you live in Berkeley? Yes. All right. Well, I'll come see you sometime. (laughs) Good. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm so glad that that poem had played a role in your creating this show. And it, it did. <laughs> see, it, things keep coming in. You yes, put something do. out on the waters and then it comes back. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I have a question. I'm listening in my earphones. Oh, um, is there... Um, we create a you know a produced show we'll 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 layer the conversation with with some music and is there i just wonder if there's music that's especially meaningful to you that you and you don't have to answer the question right now or maybe we could do this by email but no i can tell you right now okay. because you know what what we are making anita and i are making a recording with the cellist david darling oh great and uh so we're Uh, re-recording it this month, and he has a Grammy-winning CD uh, called Something Compassion. David Darling is his name. David Darling. He was the cellist in the Paul Winter Consort. Okay. And it's the Something of Compassion. All right. The Path of Compassion. And um, it, it won a a Grammy this year, and uh, I think we we presented together here in Berkeley when he played um, uh, improvised as he heard us read, and uh, it was so magical and so uh, authentically marvelous. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> that uh, all right? That I bet. 
if you, uh, I think that would be great. All right, we'll find it. We'll find it, and um, Nancy will let you know what's happening with the show, when it's going to air, and if we have any questions. I know she's been talking with your assistant, and we we might have a little email exchange. But I'm just very Good. grateful. Very yeah, grateful. Yeah, if there's anything else you want. Okay. All right. I'm All so right. glad to have met you. Thank you. You too. Uh, have a wonderful life. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Callie. No problem. Have a great day. You too. Signing off.